On this month's show, our special guest is Peter Blecka, co-author of Lost Roadhouses of Seattle. We'll talk about options when wine tasting, openings like Mason's Famous Lobster Rolls, and where Chef Bobby Moore has landed. We'll keep you updated on events and end with some tips. You'll hear it all on the Seattle Dining Show. Support for Seattle Dining and the Seattle Dining Show is provided in part by... Whistlin' Jack's Outpost and Lodge in the heart of the Washington Cascade Range where you can go to unplug, reset, and recharge. Stay in one of their refreshed cabins, relax in the hot tub overlooking an old-growth forest, and dine in their full-service Riverview restaurant. Find them online at whistlinjacks.com. Hi, this is Holly Smith from Cafe Juanita. Welcome to the Seattle Dining Show. Coming to you live at the Test Kitchen Studio high atop Queen Anne Hill, it is time for the Seattle Dining Show. Join us as we explore news about Northwest restaurants, take a look at upcoming events, discover new kitchen tips you can use at home, dive into great recipes, and much more. And now, here's your host, the senior editor, Connie Adams, and whoever else just happened to drop by today. Welcome to our September show, number 2209. I'm Connie Adams, Senior Editor, and I'm here with Tom Marin, publisher and owner of Seattle Dining. Owner? Owner. Wow. You should be proud, man. I must make millions. Well, you do. (laughs) You do. And thank you for sharing those with me. Boy, the fans are all on in here today, huh? Yeah. It's It's hot. It's not helping very much. We'd be worse off without them. I want to be where we were last week. Yeah, I have to say that natural air conditioner of sitting outside and under a bunch of trees camping. Yeah, the the East Fork of the Hood River air conditioner. That yeah. was a good one. That was a good one. And, you know, I have to say, I have always loved the sound of running water. And to go to sleep at night and hear that river, you didn't hear it. And, I never heard it. And the crickets. The crickets yeah, I never were quite heard the crickets loud. either. It was great. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. yeah. I have nature's little... Earplugs in all the time. <laughs> so pleasant. So when we were down in Hood River, we did a little tricky thing, and, and you can talk about how this all came about. Okay. You know, one thing I want to say before we start this is I do understand why wineries charge for tastings. You know, I mean, especially if you're small. Keep the riffraff out? Well, that, of course, but it doesn't work with us. But still, no, I was thinking more, if, especially if you're a small winery, you can't just give all your product away. Well, they used to. I know, but how do, how do they make it? Nobody started charging for tastings until like mm, 2000 or so. Yeah, I but I also... I remember the, ever getting charged for tastings no, in the 90s or the 80s. Probably not, but also a lot more people are tasting. I mean, how can you just plow people through? You'd give, you'd give all your wine away. Anyway... Yeah. Anyway, I do get it. However, on our side of things, uh, you can't go out and taste when all the tastings are $25 per person. Exactly. You know, so I think we've talked about this before, but we were in Napa one time and everything was 25 or 30 bucks per person. Uh, some of the places were willing to let us share, so it was $25 for the two of us. But still, you can't do more than three. I mean, it's 75 bucks. Oh, no. Oh, oh. You know, so down there, what we started doing was... We just didn't taste in the early afternoon. We'd go, well, we might have lunch, or we'd go someplace um, for appetizers or sitting at the bar someplace. Yep. And we'd 
say, can I try a taste of this? And if we liked it, we'd just go ahead and buy you the glass. You had a taste of two different wines, and I'd have a taste of two different wines. Yeah. And it wasn't killing anybody at the restaurant. Yeah. And then we decide what we want to have with our lunch. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we'd have tasted four wines. Exactly. And, for and, nothing. And we got to kind of try them out with some food as well as alone. So that was kind of good. Yeah. So we were just down in Oregon, and we were camping. And there were six of us, and um, the same issue came up. I, I said I'd put together a little tasting for one day, and we'd go out one afternoon and do it. One place had a $10 per person minimum. Everything else was 15 or 25 mm-hmm. And, you know, I, again, didn't want to do it. So I looked around, and we had jokingly said the night before, gee, it's fun to go out and taste wine, but there's a lot of places we want to eat, too. So I said, well, let's do this. Let's do a progressive lunch. Yeah. Let's go to the first place and maybe have appetizers and a bottle of wine and then go and have a salad and a bottle of wine and then, you know, go someplace for the main dish and have a bottle of wine. And with six people, you're going to get, you know, a sixth of a bottle of wine. It's not right. much. So you're, you're not going to drink a lot. Yeah, so you're not, it's not a problem driving. But um, what we did, actually, the reality of what we did was we did go to the first place, Solstice, and um, we had Brussels sprouts, which are very good there. Mm-hmm. And then we got two small pizzas. Mm-hmm. So we each had like a piece of each of the pieces. So two pieces, two slices and some Brussels sprouts. And we split a bottle of wine. And then we did get a salad at the Gorge White House. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also got a flatbread because we'd had a cherry one at the first place. And they had a cherry one. So we were doing a little A-B test. <laughs> and then we went to Phelps Winery and got charcuterie boxes and a bottle of wine. So it was like four and a half hours. Yeah. And then we, we ended up not doing a main meal. We went back to the campsite and had hot dogs or yeah. no hamburgers that night. So, and that was great because then we could sit down and really relax and, you know. Yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go out to dinner again. We'd already been to three places for lunch. So yeah. I really wanted to just sit down at the campsite and relax. Exactly. And it was, I think everybody really enjoyed doing that. So. And then I could drink wine. Yeah. It didn't matter. We weren't going to drive anywhere. So, And so that was nice. We got three places, three different wines, three different foods. Yeah. Um, so consider doing a progressive lunch sometime when you're out with a group of people. Yeah. That was really fun. It was, it was worth it. And we got to eat at three restaurants that we never would have gone to all in that one mm-hmm. trip. And we did. And we'd only tried um, one of the places before when we'd been down in the area. So it was the other two were brand new to us. Uh, brand new to you, but I had done the White House. Oh, had you? Yeah. Oh, you kept that to yourself. A couple times. Oh, I had no idea. He lies to me sometimes. He hides things that he's... But they change that all the time. I don't don't remember them doing pizzas before. Now they're doing pizzas. They did a barbecue Mm. sandwich that I had there before. Oh, okay. I don't know if they have that on the menu this time. No, I didn't see anything. So they change up. Yeah. Hmm. So it is like going to a new place. Yeah. So speaking of eating out, shall we talk about where we've been eating out? Sure. You want to jump in first? Because we're talking about these places. Okay, so uh, uh, one of the places mentioned was the Solstice Woodfire Cafe. It's down in Hood River, near the water, where all the kite skiers are, or whatever. they got all kinds of funny different stuff down there now. I don't know what those things are with those with oh, those yeah. rudders that go 10 feet down into the water. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, um, I, I, I thought 
it was okay. I, I, you know, we had the, uh, what was it called, the cowgirl or yeah, something? Country, country girl. Country girl pizza with the, with the cherries. They burned the cherries. Yeah, they were. Uh, they burned them to a crisp. And there, also, there weren't very many of them. Maybe they pulled right. off the really bad ones. Yeah. So uh, I can't say I was happy about that. Uh, they did have uh, a core Cabernet Sauvignon. Or no, it was a Cabernet. Yeah, it was a Cab Cellars. Yeah, Core Cellars. And that went really good with the other pizza that we had, which was a gluten-free something or other. No, the gluten-free was on the cherry one. Oh, okay. And then this one was the salami, some kind of salami and uh, arugula, fresh yeah. arugula on top. And it went well with the Brussels sprouts, too. Yeah, yeah, that was a great wine. So we did that, um, and then you and I had a really good prime rib dinner up wow. at Apple Valley Barbecue in Parkdale. And you had been there before, and you were like, yeah, it's okay. Well, I never had a prime rib dinner there, yeah. and uh, that prime rib was tender. There wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of fat going through it. It was not – you could chew it. Mm-hmm. You could cut it with a regular fork. Um. And the only other place I've had a prime rib that good when I'm out traveling is uh, down there in Pendleton. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was. It, they smoke it for eight hours. Yeah, and it has a little smoke ring on it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I highly recommend if you're down in the Hood River area that you make your way up to Parkdale. Yeah. And get the uh, get the prime rib dinner. It's only Friday and Saturday night. Exactly. So. And it comes with two sides, and we you can they have. You know, kind of their regular sides, and if you want to pay a little extra, they have upgraded sides, and their upgraded sides included a salad. So we each just nice got salad. a green salad, and so that was not an extra. Well, it was two a dollar a piece, so two dollars extra. That's fine. And and it was a fourteen ounce prime rib. We split it. Yeah. So it yeah. was, and they have wine in a can, which I was like, oh good god, this is going to be bad. And you know what? It was okay. And you know, wine in a can. They, I think they sold it for nine bucks a can. And you know, a can of wine is twenty or is, uh, twelve ounces, so that's basically two glasses of yeah. wine for nine bucks. That's a good deal. And yeah, it doesn't taste bad coming out of a can. No, it was quite good actually. Mine was a Pinot Noir. It was good. So yep, mm. highly recommended. Then we mentioned we were at the Gorge White House, and they did have pizzas. We had a cherry pizza. And we had a salad that we split, a pear salad. And that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And we had a Chardonnay, which mm-hmm. was nice. From the Gorge yeah. White House. Yeah. So that was, and it's kind of fun, you know, it was hot that day. So we, I think we're all glad to take off after we had been there. Um, yep. But uh, we sat outside and, and it was in the shade. And it was just nice, you know. And they, interestingly, they have like two rows of tables that kind of go out into the vineyard. Sitting right in the direct sunlight. Yeah, they didn't have any cover on it, so I think it would be great in the evening as it as the sun went down, or later in the you know like maybe early September or something. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't do it. That it looked really fun. Somebody but, went out there and sat at one of those oh, did tables, they? but I would never. do I that. never saw anybody out there, so we found a nice shady one. Yeah. Well, the other thing I want to talk about is I went downtown and interviewed Finn Findley, Michael Finley, who is. Uh, owns the franchise for Mason's Famous Lobster Rolls in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so that story is coming up in the September issue. But I did want to talk about it. It, I really enjoyed it. And and they're making it, he remembers from his childhood what lobster rolls were supposed to be like. Mm -hmm. And so when when he and his 
he had some friends who turned him on to Masons, and he was like, oh, my God. So he and his dad and his two sisters now have three, I think, franchises, Denver and uh, D.C. and Seattle, and, and they think they're going to – they were going to do Portland, and now they say, no, nah, I think we're going to do something else in the northwest up here. So, um, but it's wonderful lobster, and they've got the – they bring the bread in that that stands up to all the butter. Uh-huh. And it's soft, so you're not breaking your teeth off or scraping the top of your mouth. But you're making it's, me hungry. I know, and it, and I'm, <laughs> they stuffed it with lobster. It's $22 for a sandwich, but honestly, that seemed inexpensive for lobster for me around here. Yeah. You know. i got to go try it. Yeah, it's. We, I'll go with you. So it's downtown Seattle. It's right next to the Harbor Steps. It's on First Avenue. Okay. So and that was part of his thing too. When I talked to him about location, he said, "You know, to be down here and to be able to take the sandwich over, it should be walking around food, so you can take it and walk around and look at the Great Wheel and the Seattle water. It's the closest you're going to get to being in Maine." Oh yeah, that's why they have Subway sandwich. So you can walk around with that. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you see people all the time walking around with Subway sandwiches, right? Never. No, I wouldn't do it either personally because I love that butter. I don't want to lose a drop. So, (laughs) so anyway. That's another. Right, what have you been cooking at home? You know, I had two uh, pretty good results this last month. I did a, I marinated chicken thighs mm-hmm. in a peach marinade, and I actually blended up a peach with some other stuff. Soy, there was soy in it, and then it was a lettuce wrap, and we uh, sliced that chicken up and sliced peach up. And put in there and wrapped it up in the chicken. You mm-hmm. liked it, too. That was really good. Hmm. And yeah, I had that, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's remembering good. well. He loved it. Um, and then I did a Latin turkey sloppy joe. It was ground turkey, had a bunch of spices like cumin, um, had raisins, tomato paste. And then I, it said you could put avocado in it if you wanted to, kind of like. So I just sliced it and put it on the side. But you put it in the sandwich, and it was like, that made it really good. Yeah, it was good. So I would say, yeah, always put the avocado Sadly, in Sadly, I never got to eat the leftover. Oh. It got too old. Yeah, we were busy getting ready to leave. And Yep. So, how about you? Uh, I made a, I said on the show last month that I, I really wanted to get and make a gazpacho with all the heat. And I did. And it came out really good. It was good. really good. Hope I have the recipe somewhere. Oh, don't say that. Uh, oh, I know. I did because I took it off of uh, America's Test Kitchen. So mm, I, I that's, right. that's right. That's um, right. We had some good food when we were camping. You know, we make it really simple in the mornings when we go camping. We just have uh, a parfait every morning and some bacon. Mm-hmm. And boy, is my lodge pan seasoned well now from cooking all that bacon. Oh, yeah. So uh, we had that. Um, and then we had... The nacho right. dinner was the one that I wanted. We made grass-fed hot dogs one night. What's the, what's the dinner you're talking about? The nacho. Oh, the mm. nachos, yeah. yeah. That was the one I wanted to talk yeah, about. Yeah, we, we did sort of a one-pot nachos where we, we uh, cooked up the beef in the, in the pan, and then we put it off to the side, and we heated up the beans in there and put the beef back in, put the cheese over the top of that. Got the nachos, put them in there. We had some... No, we didn't put nachos in there. Oh, we had guacamole. Yeah, you made guacamole. And we just put chips on our plates and then spooned up the beef, bean, cheese stuff. And you could... And then we also had guacamole, so you had two ways to dip your chip. Yeah. Yeah. 
That worked out good. Yeah, that was really good. I like that. All right, what have you been drinking? Well, we got three wines that we've tried that we haven't talked about yet. We've tried all of them like back in April or May. We did a 2020, and I am going to just massacre this, De Pont Melon de Bourgogne, which originates from the Loire, the grape. Mm-hmm. This was from the Dundee Hills in Oregon. It was a gift from a friend. Uh, 12.9 alcohol. In You had written down the bottle price in 2021 was $26. Very clear in color, crisp nose of grapefruit. The taste was really clean, almost sparkling. Kind of had apple. I think I looked it up and it said pineapple, too. It was tart and dry. Um, you you felt like the finish disappeared and then it reappeared. Like magic. Magic. Not a lot of body. We drank it with roasted pork tenderloin with apples and shallots. You said it was better on its own, and it was, and that maybe the salt wiped it out. And when I was looking it up, it did say that the French think melon is one of the best wines with seafood. So, of course, we put it with pork tenderloin. So, you know... <laughs> But it was a good drinking wine, and we'd have it again. Yeah. Then we did a 2019. Do you want to talk about this one? A 2019 Original House Wine Cabernet Sauvignon, 13.5% alcohol. You picked it up at Town & Country in Ballard. We don't know the price. Uh, this price produced and bottled in Walla Walla. Well, I think the Original House Wine is one of the Charles Smith labels. I thought so, but I think he was just house wine, and this is the original house wine. I'm not sure if there's a difference. Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, kind of ruby in color, a little bit of cherry on the nose, a little bit earthy, a little bit leathery. Taste was mellow. It was very good with a beef enchilada casserole that we had. Uh, very bad with guacamole and chips. Yeah, didn't work with that. But we'd get it again. We would. And any of the house wines are, are usually pretty good drinking wines, too. Mm-hmm. So they have a nice, a nice flavor on the palate that you don't have to pair with food. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one we tried was a Chardonnay. It was a no vintage. It's called Bucket List. 13.5 alcohol. And I got it at Safeway for, drum roll please, $4.99, regularly $8.99. That's when the Queen Anne Safeway was going down. So oh, yeah. They were Given deals on stuff. It was almost clear color-wise, no legs. The nose was citrus, maybe apricot, a tiny bit grassy with a slight pungent resin. The first taste was really crazy on the tongue, then it kind of mellowed. We had it with, yet again, guacamole and organic yellow corn chips. And we we have kind of mixed feelings on this one. Uh, We thought it might be a little better than some of the other really inexpensive wines we've tried, but we wouldn't race out to get it. I mean, if it appeared in our homes, we would drink it. But and you that, mentioned it had no legs, so we yeah. couldn't even get it to leave. Yeah, and you know you can beg, you can you, beg you, and you beg. You really beg. don't want your wine with legs because it might take off while you're in the middle of drinking. I know it, if so. it's good, you don't want it to go. <laughs> no. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we'll do the news bites. Support for Seattle Dining and the Seattle Dining Show is provided in part by. The Canyon River Grill, located in the heart of Yakima Canyon. Experience Chef Kevin Davis's meticulously crafted and delicious cuisine alongside the Yakima River. Extend your stay in overnight in one of the Canyon River Ranch's exquisite suites. Visit the website at canyonrivergrill.com for hours and reservations. 
Hi, I'm Emma from Seattle, and my favorite restaurant is Edda's on the waterfront. Their salmon is unbeatable. I love Armstrong Winery in Woodenville, and I'm a fan of Basil Cellars. Hi, this is Chef Lainey Carey from the Fig and the Judge restaurant in downtown Seattle, and you're listening to the Seattle Dining Show. We are back on the Seattle Dining Show. You got Tom Marin, the founding father. Founding father. And Connie Adams, the, I don't know. Not a mother. Definitely not a mother. Not a founding mother. Mm-mm. But uh, but she is the queen bee, nonetheless. Okay. I'm going for queen bee. Oh, and, and one of my friends called me young samurai today so i'm going with that too young samurai all right young samurai sounds like a sushi dish but i'll go with it (laughs) so uh we're going to talk about news bites here what's going on well we just pull out a few things here and there but you know you can always go uh keep up with news bites because we add all the time so just go to seattledining.com backslash news bites and find out more so last month we talked about chef bobby moore leaving Barking Frog, and now this month, it's all been revealed. He is purchasing Beasts on Main in Ballard, uh, in Ballard, in Bellevue. Yeah, in Ballard. From, well, let's put one in Ballard yeah. too. Well, he's we'll gonna, put a Main Street in Ballard. While he's he's going to open. It's going to be a franchise thing. That's what's happening. Yeah. Now, um, in Bellevue, he bought it from Joe Velarde as well as Velarde's B Bar, and he's turning that into Bar More, a champagne slash cocktail lounge. So Bison Main opened in 1998. It is a iconic Bellevue place. Um, the name is going to stay, and the staff is staying on. So that's pretty exciting. Bobby's got his own place. Yeah, good for Bobby. Yeah, he put his time in and done good work for the folks over at the Barking Frog yeah. Willows Lodge. Yeah, and uh, it's about time, dog, on it. Gosh, we were wondering <laughs> when he was ever going to make something of his life. So, um, Linda Dershang has sold Oddfellows Cafe Plus Bar and Little Oddfellows in Elliott Bay Bookstore to Joey Burgess and Murph Hall. They took over the two locations at the end of August, and Linda still owns King Hardware and Linda's Tavern. Hmm. Uh, that was another big change. She seems to be diverse, uh, not diversifying, but um, getting rid of stuff. What I am I don't trying to think say? I ever went to the Oddfellows in the... No. Elliott Bay Bookstore. I remember when Tamara yeah, used Murphy. to own that down That's there. That's the last time I was there. Yeah. And of course, and that was when it was down in Pioneer Square, and then it moved up to Capitol Hill, the bookstore. Oh, they moved the bookstore up to Capitol yeah, Hill. Yeah, it's not oh. been there for years. Okay. He reads a lot, too. Huh. Tom's on to the whole book thing. Didn't they move it, like, next door to where Tamara Murphy's place is? I think it's in that same spot there. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I've only been there once, and I'm I'm vague on it. I'll look it up on Google Maps. Yeah. Or something like that. I'll fly my drone over and check. <laughs> that thing has really come in handy, I must say. Oh, yeah. Neighbors love me. <laughs> well, stop. Look who's taking a shower yeah, now. Yeah, you've got to stop, you know, hovering around the windows. They're, <laughs> they're going to be upset by that. Um, pastry chef Christina Tosi from New York is bringing her milk bar concept. Now, I don't personally know anything about this but milk bar i know that name it's like she's famous for this she does really kind of funny interesting desserts 
it's coming to the Nordstrom at Bellevue Square this fall. And um, she, besides New York, has locations in Boston, L.A., Las Vegas, D.C., and Toronto. And this is the really interesting part of this to me. This, is, this whole next line looks like a typo, but go ahead. And it is not. She will also have her cake truffles at Taco Bell. I'd like two beef burritos and some cake truffles, please. <laughs> Make it three cake truffles. Uh, that's so interesting to me, but, I mean, it may actually get me to Taco Bell, at least for dessert. Uh, well, yeah, get me there once, but probably not twice. <laughs> Let's see. Maybe you could do a progressive uh, Mexican meal and end the Taco Bell with the cake <laughs> truffles. Do you have any wine? Do you have any <laughs> canned wine we could have with our cake truffles? Um, starting September 18th and going through the end of the year, Eastlake Bar and Grill will become a private event space. That whole area is being redeveloped, yep. so they were going down. And I think maybe they just decided, let's see what we can do for, you know, catering a. a Private parties and stuff for the, you know, that's end of the year is one of the holidays and everything. So, yeah, probably a good idea. Yeah, I'm just, I'm making a guess at that. But, you know, they've got three bars, two outdoor decks, fenced dog zone, an outdoor tiki bar, an indoor dining space, and can accommodate groups up to 300. I mean, it'd be a great place to have a party. It's got that great view. Yeah. So, if you want it, just contact catering at neighborhoodgrills.com. Then, I'll miss that view. I know. No, no doubt it's just going to turn into a bunch of condos or whatever. I'm or, sure. You know, cracker box houses or yeah. something. I don't know. They will have good views. We might want to think yeah, about it. Yeah, they'll have good views. <laughs> but. Um, LaCoin in Fremont has started a monthly, like all month long, three-course mm-hmm. cocktail-inspired tasting menu with petite dishes. So it's instead of a major wine dinner, you can go into the bar daily $70 per person and get three courses with cocktails. Maybe we should go do that. Yeah. I we haven't been there for a while. We haven't, and it was lovely when we were there. They are, um, I don't know if this is Josh or, or everybody, the team or something, but they come up with stuff all the time. They're always coming up with something new and different, mm-hmm. which is uh, really good, I think, because they are, it is kind of a destination spot, but they're definitely a neighborhood place, and they're keeping it interesting. We'll just jump on a couple lime scooters and go over. Yeah, let's do that. I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, Flora, I, I have to start stop saying um. I've done it three times in a row now. Flora Bakehouse, the Flora Bakehouse, has added soft surf to their offerings, both vanilla custard and vegan chocolate. So they have five different things you can order that they make up, and one of them, I mean, this is amazing, vanilla strawberry compote with lemon curd, mini meringues, and fresh berries. Coming to a Taco Bell near you. (laughs) (laughs) Or you could just get one of the custard or the chocolate in cups or cones. That sounds good. $70 a piece. No, no, no. So uh, this happened so quickly, I didn't even know it was happening. We kept walking, going past Ballard and saying, what's in there? I thought that place was closed. It was yeah. the old Matador. Yeah. It was Bun Soy in Ballard, and it closed on 825 after just six months. So Chef Robbie Coquia is leaving to pursue his next food idea, which I don't know what it is. And Omer, owner Tommy Patrick will turn the space into a seafood and small plate spot mid-September. So here's my... Wondering, 
Where Matador moved mm-hmm. used to be a seafood spot. And a type spot before that. Yeah, but they didn't, and, and it, I will say, I'm going to blame this on COVID, but the seafood spot didn't make it. Right. So now this guy is going to put seafood right up on the into corner the old of Ballard Avenue yeah. and Market Street. But they're small plates, so you know we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. So uh, the wonderful Arnie Milan, the the famous Seattle wine guy who knows a lot about wine, is one re- of our very first interviews ever. Really, was Arnie Milan. Wow! Before I came on, and that was two thousand four for his restaurant down there on. Oh yeah, First Avenue or Second. Yeah, Avenue? that's right. I was on. It yeah. was yeah. Um, he's retiring nine three September third from Esquin. He'll be in the store that day for the last time from noon to 4.30 if you want to go down and wish him a happy retirement. He's going to spend more time with his kids and grandkids. Yeah, that's nice. He deserves it. All right, we're going to take a little break and we'll come back and do the calendar. You got it. Support for Seattle Dining and the Seattle Dining Show is provided in part by... Dock and Drink, a unique, lodge-themed, heated and tented outdoor space along Lake Washington's southern end with stunning views of the lake, Olympic Mountains, and downtown Seattle skyline. This casual dockside restaurant changes throughout the year to take advantage of favorite seasonal ingredients in their bites, small shareables, flatbreads, and desserts. Creatively handcrafted cocktails, local beer and wine, and zero-proof mocktails complete your visit. Dock and Drink is located on the dock at the Hyatt Regency Lake Washington in Renton. Find them online at dockanddrink.com. Hi, my name is Leslie. I'm from Edmonds. My favorite restaurant in Edmonds is Bar Dojo. Their avocado tempura is delicious. Hello, this is Jeff Pita from Vin Crew USA, and you are listening to the Seattle Dining Show. To the September Seattle Dining Show, you're here with Tom Marin and Connie Adams, and we are heading into the calendar section, the section everyone wants to know. Um, as always, we're just putting up a, a, a section of ideas. There's a lot more on the calendar, and we update all the time, so please go out to the seattledining.com backslash calendar and find out more. All right, so coming up. The Seattle Cider Summit, September 9th through the 10th at Lake Union Park, right there next to Mohai. Uh, It's going to run from 3 to 8 p.m. on Saturday and noon to 5 on Sunday. The general admission is $40 per person if you get it in advance, or it's going to be $60 at the gate. And that includes all the taxes and the fees. Uh, VIP tickets are $50 ahead of time. You will not be able to buy those at the gate. The designated driver admission is available at the gate for $5 cash or $6 credit debit. you got to be 21 and over, and you can't bring babies in. 
There's over 150 selections from more than 50 producers, local, regional, and international favorites. They'll be serving mead, cider cocktails, apple spirits, and even a few surprises. What could that mean? (laughs) I don't know. This is um, back after a break, you know, after a COVID break, so uh, it's nice to see it come back. Mm Mm-hmm. A Bit of Taste, the olive oil company that has opened in Snohomish. They opened officially on August 31st. They're doing a grand opening and ribbon cutting. So this is the former Queen Anne olive oil has exactly. moved to Snohomish, and now they're going to be reopening. Yeah, and that's uh, their big ribbon cutting and stuff is September 10th from noon to 5. It's free. You get to go in and sample oils and balsamics, as you always do. So I think you'll... Find that it's a it's a very cute shop, so in their new space. I've been there. Yes, you have. I hung some pictures there. You've done work. You've done work for them. <laughs> All right, uh, the 2022 fall release and pig roast at Avenia is going to be held September 10th from 3 to 7 p.m. The cost is going to be sixty dollars per person. The meal is prepared by Chef Bobby Moore. Where have we heard his name yeah, today? Yeah, it seems like something's going on with him. And uh, he'll be doing roasted pig and sides, uh, tastings of fall favorite wines, 2020 La Perle, 2020 Justine, 2020 Arnaud, and 2019 Sestina, not to be confused with Retsina. <laughs> Glass pours will be available for purchase. It's going to be taking place at the Avenia Production Facility in Woodenville. You will get that address off our calendar page. And that's what's happening. Just that production facility thing is important to know. It's not at the tasting room. Ah, good point. Yeah. Good point. Just follow your nose. Wherever you smell that roast pig, just Keep going that way. you got to be able to find none. And then you'll find Bobby, too. The Seattle Bourbon Bash is back. And I just want to say, again, it's September 10th. There's like a million things happening on September 10th. This is from 5 to 8, so you might be able to, you know, fit in a couple things. It's going to be at the Rick House Whiskey Bar at Daniel's Broiler downtown. As always... It's a 401k buster. It's 250 per person for VIP admission. <laughs> 401k buster. <laughs> That's a good one. And $195 regular admission. It's a vast collection of bourbon and rye whiskey on display and available for sampling. And even a small collection of Pappy Van Winkle. I think we've talked about this before. We did try Pappy Van Winkle one time at Eureka when they were brand new. Okay. And we were like... Okay. What's the big deal? Yeah, we're not getting it, but it's to to bourbon and whiskey lovers, it's a big deal. Hmm. There will be brand reps available to answer questions and give the history of the beverages and a selection of heavy appetizers. And you know, Daniels does a pretty good job on those appetizers. That's true. Everybody tries to copycat them. Do they? Yeah, I see <laughs> people try to re-engineer recipes all mm. the time. Oh yeah. All right. Uh, coming on September 10th, also from 3 to 7 p.m., Heaven in a Glass Viticulture and Enology Scholarship Fundraiser at the Columbia Crest Winery. 
at Patterson, Washington. Going to be $65 in advance, $70 on the day of the event. You can taste and purchase wines from 12 vineyards and wineries. Purchase food from one of many food trucks. You watch it, watch it, boy. You got out there and sample those Patterson food trucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're the best. Uh, live music from Latin Fusion. You can bid on amazing items during the silent auction. This is a 21 and over event. No babies. No babies. Leave your baby at home. Get a sitter. <laughs> <laughs> I can see sometimes when somebody might want to just bring their baby on their back or something, but, you know, for other people drinking and having a good time. No. Like, what's the baby going to do? Like, grab a wine glass and start drinking? I don't no, think No, they're so. going to start crying and howling because it's oh, hot. Point, and Mom's yeah. not doing it. And I want to go eat. And I don't want drinking. <laughs> but speaking of drinking, Lake Hole Number 41 Wine Dinner at Lombardi's, both in Mill Creek and, and in Bellingham. In Mill Creek, it's September 24th. In Bellingham, it's seven tw- September 23rd. Both start at 6 p.m. 125 includes tax and grat. They're going to have five courses with wine paired. It's going to be cold melon soup with a semillon sauve blanc from Luminescence Estate, a brassola and burrata from Merlot-Columbia Valley, a capoletti, Cabernet Sauvignon from Walla Walla going with that, braised lamb shank, apogee from Pepper Rip Bridge, and a Bordeaux cherry chocolate cake with a Syrah from Columbia Valley. That sounds pretty good for 125 bucks. Pretty tasty. Yeah. And with a tax and grad in there, 125, five courses, I don't know. Sounds pretty darn good. Are we talking about bullet point number six today or uh, not? I told you I wasn't going to, but oh, we okay. can. It's it's the Washington Artisan Cheesemakers Festival on September seventeenth. Uh-huh. It's out on our calendar and then I was looking it up for some other reason to get, you know, another piece of information. It's been canceled. Oh, okay. So Couldn't just get enough volunteers. Maybe or yeah. <laughs> or cheesemakers. You know, there's just a lack of cheesemakers. Alrighty. Uh well Elliot's annual Oyster New Year and remember Oyster New Year doesn't fall on New Year's. Yeah, this year it will fall on November fifth from four to eight PM. Ooh, baby. You better get your armored truck out. $250 per person plus $25.25 in fee. So $275 takes place at Elliott's Oyster House and includes oysters shucked to order, local wines, fresh seafood, local microbrews, oyster luge, Mm -hmm. live music, a raffle, and a to-go box with 10 oyster meal. Oh, no, that's not right. <laughs> we talked about this last month, too, but we were putting it out there early because those tickets sell out, even at that price. We've been to this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, 250 bucks. It's got to be, it's a fundraiser or something, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it helps with, um, it's like Puget Sound, uh, Sound relief or something like that, but it all goes back. A lot of it goes back to making Puget Sound safe and sustainable. Okay. Yeah. So okay. you are doing a good thing by going, and there is money out of that going right to there. Yeah, you got to make you got to make people feel good about piping out two hundred fifty dollars. I know. All right, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we have a special guest in house. Support for Seattle Dining and the Seattle Dining Show is provided in part by. 
Esquin Wine and Spirits. Drop by and check out one of the widest inventories of wines from around the world, as well as local and international spirits, all procured by their expert staff. Is your wine collection ready for a new home? Esquin offers monthly wine store storage lockers in a temperature-controlled environment. Visit their website at madwine.com today. Hi, my name is Chef Jeremy. I live in Kelowna, British Columbia. When I visit Seattle, one of my favorite things to do is eat lots of shellfish and visit the market. Hi, this is Shannon from Friday Harbor from the San Juan Islands Visitors Bureau, and you're listening to The Seattle Dining Show. We are back on the Seattle Dining Show. I'm Tom Marin, the publisher. I'm here with Connie Adams, the front of the house. And we have a special guest in the studio today. Connie, who's here with us today? It is Peter Blecka, author of Lost Roadhouses of Seattle, along with quite a number of other books. Um, one on Sam Michelle, for instance, which we will quiz you about a little bit later. Um, but welcome, first of all. Well, thank you, Connie. Yeah, and give us just a brief bio so people know what other books you've put out and what your interest is. Great. Well, I was born in Seattle and raised mostly in Olympia, and somehow inexplicably, inexplicably I became interested in history from a young age. Uh, when I was about 10, one summer I was offered the choice of, would you like to go to summer camp at the lake, or would you like to go to history camp at the State Capitol Museum? <laughs> and you chose history camp. I did. So that shows how weird I am. <laughs> And I followed that, uh, studied a lot of history along the way at University of Washington and so forth. Um, in 1983, I started writing a regular column on music history, Pacific Northwest music history, mm -hmm. for The Rocket magazine. Did that for, I don't know, a couple decades, basically. Wow. And in 1992, I was hired by Paul Allen to be a curator uh, and archivist for this project that ended up being the Experience Music Project, Seattle's Music Museum, which has now been recast as the uh, MOPOP, the Museum of Pop Culture. Mm. That was a very fun gig. That had to be. Ah, it certainly was. And uh, in about 2001, I started, uh, Walt uh, Crowley hired me uh, to be a staff historian at historylink.org, the free online encyclopedia of Washington State history. And I've been writing essays about local history for them uh, since then, still on the staff there. And But this Lost Roadhouses of Seattle book that just came out is my 10th book, all of them about history. And uh, they often include uh, music history, but one of the books was the history of the Port of Seattle. Hmm. And the, the other non-music one was the 50-year uh, anniversary book for Chateau Saint-Michel yeah. Winery. We have a question about that. Okay. <laughs> um, I was looking at the bibliography, and a lot of your information came from, like, interviews in 1978 and things like that. So is this, has this been kind of a, in the back of your head, you've wanted to do this for a while, or did all of a sudden something just clicked and it was like, i got to do this? A little bit of both. Um, so I've been a musician since third grade, studied piano, and then oh, took wow. drum lessons and played in all the junior high and high school bands and all that stuff, and then started playing in rock bands and country rock bands in the 1970s. Um, when I moved back to Seattle to attend the University of Washington in 1974, I had it in my mind that uh, it would be easy to fall into the music scene up here, because mm -hmm. as a kid I was aware that all these great radio hits 
were coming out on Northwest-based record labels and by Northwest bands and Northwest songs like Louie Louie and all that stuff. And I came to Seattle and discovered that all that entire infrastructure of the music industry was gone. All those record labels had gone extinct. Most of the recording studios had gone extinct. Most of the hit bands were long gone. And it was sort of starting from scratch. That coincided with the emergence then uh, in the mid-70s of the punk and new wave culture, and so I kind of fell into all that. Um, Did that answer the question? Kind of, in terms of how did the music, because it was at the roadhouses, is part of what drew you into the roadhouse thing, because they were dance places and the live bands? Well, that was secondary. Initially, it was, I was kind of upset that all of this infrastructure was gone. I thought, yeah. where did the recording engineers go? Where are the studios? And so yeah. I started in about 1978, starting with Jimi Hendrix's father, because oh. I knew he was in town, and his phone number was in the phone book back then. Wow. <laughs> wow. So he was the first guy I interviewed, because I wanted to know about uh, Jimmy's uh, boyhood and his teenage bands that he had in here in Seattle. Okay. And from there, I just uh, followed the followed the leads and started, yeah. so I ended up, over the years since 1978, interviewing at least probably 500 people, radio DJs, dance promoters, oh, wow. nightclub owners, uh, and the musicians. Yeah. So, and uh, the history came out of, of all that. It did. And as it went on and on and on, I was gathering uh, information on the venues where the music was happening. And initially I was interested in the teen, eight, the teen clubs and, and that sort of thing, and the high school dances and the history of all that stuff. And it just led to, by gathering that information, um, well, I became aware of, or more aware of the uh, old roadhouses that had been founded in the Prohibition era yeah. that still existed. So Parker's Ballroom up on Aurora yeah. that many locals still remember. Oh, that, I do. That dated back to the 30s, but it also mm-hmm. went well into the... You know, into the 70s and beyond, and three decades after that. And then yeah. the Spanish Castle Ballroom south of Seattle. That one's very familiar, the name. I used to listen to KJR all the there time. And all the big weekend things were going on yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. So I attended none of those. I was too young, yeah. but it intrigued me. And so the connection was made. I realized a lot of these ballrooms dated way back, and only now and during my time were they rock and roll palaces. Yeah, yeah. Um, the person you wrote the book with, Brad um, Holden. Holden. Um, he also, it looks like in the book, wrote a book about bootlegging. So that's probably where some of this came from, too, because um, it was, we did a, actually a guy did a beverage column for us mm-hmm. at, from the Smith Tower. Mm. And Olmsted's wife used to do a kid's show. And what she said in the kid's show was letting the bootleggers know if they could come in or not. Right, on their own radio station. On their own radio station, yes. (laughs) I mean, so this, all that stuff is so interesting. It is. And Brad, I think of him as the region's foremost uh, expert on prohibition history. That's really his claim to fame. He's written a bunch of essays about it, had them published, including through History Link. Oh, yeah. Um, And then he did put that book out a couple years ago. And so he and I connected uh, and realized that we had a common interest in the places where this nightlife illicit action yeah. was going on, the history of it, and then we realized that really his specialty was the prohibition and the, the legal uh, aspects mm-hmm. of that, and, uh, and that mine was the entertainment that was going on in those very places, and we thought this is a perfect chance to oh, yeah. collaborate on this book. Which yeah. His book on prohibition coincided with a display down at Mohai, as I recall. 
Uh, that may be true. I definitely can tell you that, or I can verify that Mohai had a prohibition exhibit, but I don't know that Brad was involved in oh, it. Oh, I thought I thought the book was done as part of that exhibit. So. I don't think so. I hope uh, they sold it there for him. So the Roadhouse book that you have, is there any sort of uh, exhibit going to occur? Anything? I'm always open to it. I okay. have, uh, I, the thing I failed to mention in talking about my past as mm-hmm. a budding historian is that uh, in 1983 and 84, I independently curated a couple exhibits in town that were free to the public. One was in the Seattle Public Library, the old one downtown. Oh, yeah. And they gave me a big gallery space down there, and I put on an exhibit uh, about the history of recording music in the Northwest. And then I put on a second exhibit, I think, a year later at the old Peaches record store at oh, wow. 45th Peaches. and I-5. Yeah. yeah. And the funny thing to me about all that is I put out a press release. I didn't know what I was doing, but I put out a press release, and both the Seattle Times and the Seattle Post-Intelligence are intelligence or newspapers took it seriously and they wrote it up this exhibit's happening and everybody should go to it and so uh (laughs) sort of got established as an independent exhibit developer (laughs) and i've done a few since and i want to do more in the future but we have not attempted to find a place to put this exhibit on well for the last few years it's tough to find a place nobody wants to gather yeah so it's uh you know coming back yep um one of my questions was and i don't I don't know if there's an answer to this, if, or if you know, but it seemed like there was a lot of illicit activity going on in Seattle. Was that kind of nationwide because of prohibition, or or was it that the people who were drawn here were drawn here because it's kind of the Wild West, and mm-hmm. it was kind of a wild group of people, and so that's why? Or I think it was both of those things. Um, you know, just the fact that alcohol was outlawed and it was an unpopular law, mm-hmm. and people were not going to stop drinking and dancing and having fun right. so it just uh just bred corruption uh, to the yeah. extent that it corrupted police departments it corrupted city halls all over america uh yes seattle was wild uh during that whole time but so was san francisco so was you know cleveland so was yeah. detroit so you know okay so it wasn't so different than anywhere else really yeah exactly yeah. i was kind of laughing about some of the things i was reading and thinking there's some similarities like there's there was a lot of crime back then because of you know what they were trying to shut down, but there's a lot of crime now, and it it's like we we've been talking about we're breeding criminals by not cracking down, and yet they didn't crack down. People were in and out of jail so fast. It's kind of like what it is now, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of prostitution back then, and a lot of those places were on Aurora Avenue, and that is the you know the epicenter of prostitution I in no Seattle. Prostitution on Aurora? Oh, you just don't notice, but I do. <laughs> They wave to me all the time. And then there's, um, I was uh, interviewing somebody about a chicken place he had, and he was like, I said, there's a lot of competition with chicken. And he goes, yeah, but, you know, it's all a little bit different, and more competition the better is what I say. And I'm thinking, that's kind of similar. There's a lot of chicken back. Everything was chicken back then. And now bottle clubs are very popular, although you buy the bottle from them as opposed to bringing your own in. But is there any kind of, do you see a thread through time, or is it just weird? Well, that was three different questions, I think, but the one about, uh, you know, the the rise of crime or the continuing, you know, proliferation of crime, I don't know exactly who benefits from it, other than yeah. to say that what's going on currently with this, what we I think we all see as more crime in Seattle than a decade or two or three ago, mm-hmm. um, it just sure echoes from the prohibition days of a tolerance policy, yeah. where back then... The corruption 
you know, basically amounted to payoffs to uh, police, and then that money went up to City Hall, and that went on for decades and decades and decades, and yes, a bootlegger might be busted, and he might get taken to court and pay a $15 fine and get back out, and he'd be laughing about it, and so if the question is who benefits, uh, it was that whole system, and uh, in uh, the late 1960s, as you may know, there was a uh, huge uh, police and uh, city hall corruption case that exploded that uh, oh, yeah. where the county prosecutor, the chief of police, many, many police officers, probably city council people were all caught in this network of accepting bribes to look the other way. Yeah. And, you know, they ended up, there's been a, there was a great book published about it, um, On the Take by Chambliss. Oh, okay. And, um, and he tracked that money trail all the way up to the Nixon White House, that it went from cops wow. to City wow. Hall in Seattle, probably through Ehrlichman. I don't know. Yeah. Hopefully the Ehrlichman family won't sue me for saying that because <laughs> I can't quite remember the details. But you just wonder if there's not something going on now because the, the majority of the people would like to see this uh, crime cleaned up and yeah. it just doesn't get cleaned up. Uh-uh. So I think that addressed one of the questions. Yeah. Try yeah. the other one on me, chicken. <laughs> chicken. What? And I have more chicken questions for you because like everything was chicken meals what was it i know you said in the book that a lot of southerners have moved had moved up here so there was a draw about home cooking chicken but every single place had chicken dinners what was that about they did all those roadhouses whether it was on old uh, seattle everett highway which is now 99 Mm -hmm. uh, or whether it was the bothell highway which is lake city way and highway 522 the scores and scores and scores of roadhouses that were scattered along those roads seem to all feature chicken dinners. And Brad Holden, my co-author, and I have definitely pondered that. And all we can come up with is that chicken's good. Yeah. Chicken is cheaper than beef. Always yeah. has been, I do believe. And, uh, you know, the chicken was accessible around here in the... Uh, uh, South uh, Lake City Way, uh, Roosevelt, um, Maple Leaf neighborhood. There was a huge chicken ranch there on oh, about 17th okay. and 80th to oh, 75th. So it was right there for the taking. It was right there. And then the city of Linwood's claim to fame is chicken. Those were all chicken ranches that made up the whole Linwood area. Oh, okay. Which is why you see chicken statues along the highway through Linwood. That is their mascot. Oh, oh interesting. So that coupled with what you mentioned, that we mentioned, which is that, yes, there was an influx of southerners here yeah. uh, that were probably homesick for down-home cooking yeah. and that satisfied them could you tell like a lot of times in the book the picture would be of the the front of the menu and it didn't show the actual menu were were the chicken dishes all different or were they all just fried chicken they were uh, uh, spring chicken or uh, you know whole chicken or half chicken they never said does not How say it was, yeah. it's not like today where it was you know Lovingly touched with rosemary from the farm, right. you know, oh, no. <laughs> or prairie sage. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know what the recipes were. Oh, okay, but I, I just I, thought it's so funny that they all do the same thing. I know. What if one of them had said instead, "We're all pork chops"? Yeah, you know, so I don't know why they didn't. Yeah, so interesting because they didn't. Maybe they thought if they were all exactly the same, nobody would know who to bust. Because where do you go? Yeah. <laughs> um, All so, the money was getting laundered through the chicken supplier. <laughs> <laughs> so one of Tom's question was, so now where's the best chicken? Where's the best chicken dinner where's in the Seattle? the best chicken dinner? Well, it might be a little unpopular to say, but I like the chicken down at June, baby. Oh, yeah. Ah. You know, only on Sundays. Oh, okay. And it is crispy and crunchy and mm. walkable from my house. Oh, there you go. <laughs> 
Am I wrong about that? Where else is good right now? I don't know. I, we don't, you know, I, I, I don't chicken see a is... lot of chicken dinners mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know there's a fad going on for the last couple of years of crunchy chicken sandwiches everywhere. Everywhere. And the the person I was talking to was was Brian, who started Bok Bok, Baka Bok. Mm. Um, but, you know, there are a ton of fast, you know, quick casual places like that doing chicken now. Yeah. Um, but it's more like, of course, I talked to him right at the start of the, before the pandemic, I think, but most people were not having people in to sit down and they were fast food places anyway. It's not like going out and dancing and having a yeah. chicken dinner. Yeah. Now know. the now the craze is chicken carage. Oh yeah, carage. 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 Yeah. <laughs> um I asked you about that. Have some oh. carage in your garage. <laughs> <laughs> Tom was actually interested in the the history of Greenwood Avenue since that's where we are right now. In the book um, you mentioned it was kind of windy. And there was Horrific crashes on it. So I was just, I'd love to see an old map that shows that. Uh, I don't have one of Greenwood, but we have a map from 1931 of uh, the Bothell Road, Lake City mm. Way, yeah. that shows all the curves. And um, the way I look at this whole thing is, and I think it's historically accurate, is that the speakeasies and the bars originally were downtown. There was the Butler Hotel at 2nd and James. Yeah. Uh, which was probably the most raided night spot in Seattle in early Prohibition uh, because they were fairly blatant about uh, allowing people to bring their own liquor bottles in. And so it was busted all the time. The pressure just got too much downtown, and so a lot of those speakeasy owners ended up just saying, we need to head for the hills, and they came out to both Greenwood and uh, Highway 99 Mm -hmm. and the Bothell Road. And basically those roads were dark, muddy, unpaved, unlit, and uh, the Bothell Road in particular had, uh, what was it, 14 uh, sharp curves and four bridges. For people who were drinking heavily. Yes, when (laughs) automobiles were new. Yeah. So they had no experience with automobiles. So yes, the answer is there was, uh, the roads alone were dangerous, but then these uh, inexperienced drivers who were uh, hopped up and and, uh, inebriated, there were many, many crashes, and as Brad, he wrote the bit in the book about uh, about the Green- Greenwood, which began as the Golf Club Road, actually. There was a golf club out yeah, there. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. Is that because <laughs> of the uh, uh, of the golf club that's up there at 145th and Greenwood? I am not sure. Huh. Brad would know that, but it's the only golf uh, club I can think of that's around here. Yeah. Um, and... We also documented that the uh, earliest uh, roadhouse that was up there was called Duffy's, Duffy's Roadhouse, and it was founded in 1910. Wow. It was, you, may, you probably saw the photo in the book, it's early on in the book, but it's a stone building, and so it became popularly known as the Stone Castle. Yeah. Which is That's the like. one I showed you. Yeah, we went, he took me by it, yeah, and it's, it's hard to see now because it's kind of built around it, and you yeah. can't really get to it. But, yeah. yeah. So the action started early. Up here on Greenwood, uh, I think that uh, started at least a year or two before anything. The Briarcrest Lodge was the first one on the Botha Road, and it was way up there at like 178th or something. In 1910, we were just seeing automobiles coming on the scene. In fact, you know, the the legal speed limit through Seattle back at that time, probably through the teens, was eight miles an hour. (laughs) Wow. 
unsafe at any speed. (laughs) (laughs) So when you said there was horrific crashes, I was like, well, they definitely weren't going eight miles an hour when they crashed. It seems like it would have been more like bumper cars if you were just going eight miles an hour. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Of course, they probably just pop right out of the car, too. exactly. (laughs) And some of the owners of these uh, speakeasies also got themselves in wrecks. So that's all been documented in our book. Yeah. Yeah, some of those guys were drinking heavily. Yeah, really so it was not a safe commute. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's take a little break, and then we'll come right back. Okay. Support for Seattle Dining and the Seattle Dining Show is provided in part by... Pogacha Restaurant and Bar, located on Mercer Island. Locally owned and operated since 1997, Pogacha offers unmatched Northwest cuisine with an Adriatic flair. Quality food prepared simply, freshly, and with care means every visit is memorable. Come revel in their relaxed atmosphere while enjoying hand-selected fish, brine chicken, and scratch sauces. More information is available online at pogacha.com. Hi, my name is Lisa. I live in Redmond, Washington, and one of my favorite restaurants in the Redmond area is the Woodblock Restaurant. One, uh, one of the reasons I like it is they have great drinks, half price on wines on Monday nights, and I really enjoy the menu. Uh, they change it quite often, and uh, it kind of reflects the local area. Hi, this is Jillian from Town and Country Markets and you're listening to the Seattle Dining Show. We are back on the Seattle Dining Show, and we are continuing our interview with our guest, Peter Blecka. And uh, I have a question. There was a shanty cafe down on, oh, like 15th and Denny area for years and years. It was one of the oldest cafes in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And then one of the uh, still-going roadhouses in Seattle is called the Shanty Tavern. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's up on Lake City Way. And I always wondered, was there any connection between the two? Only architecturally. They kind of look both like shanties, but I don't think, and I have not heard or read, that there was any ownership connection or anything like that. You know, speaking of shanties, that reminded me of something else that was in your book about how, how many mysterious fires there were and how many roadhouses burned down. But for a while, they put up these rather elaborate facades, and it was just horrible pieces of wood. It was just something thrown together in the back that was actually the building. Mm-hmm. And was that just a, let's throw it together and make a lot of money and who cares what happens? Or or I think you were kind of intimating, too, that they were getting burned down either by the owners or maybe by somebody who wanted the partying to stop. Well, I think that exotic architecture of making them look like a castle or making them look like, uh, oh, I don't know what. I mean, there were a lot of castles, basically. Yeah. And uh, I think that was done to make them roadside attractions so people... You know, the Spanish castle was one. The Chinese mm. castle was another. Mm. Uh, the jungle temple. Exactly. And then China land. So they were uh-huh. going for exotica, which was a popular thing early in the uh, 20th century, whether it was songs that all had Egypt themes oh, or yeah. India themes. And so I think that was just to make them seem uh, attractive to yeah. people who were bored with Seattle stuff. Yeah. Or was that one that was in a, was it, was it in a tree? 
down oh. down there in uh, Federal Way area. Yeah, yeah, the Big Tree Inn. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, which more like Des Moines, I think. But uh-huh. yeah, that was a you know twenty foot wide tree that part of a stump that had been tipped over and and uh, yeah, the Big Tree Inn. I researched the Dickens out of that thing and wanted that to be a speakeasy that was getting busted all time just for the excitement factor <laughs> in the book. But I, I could only find one or two examples of them uh, committing the least heinous crime of accidentally selling a beer to a minor once or twice. So, <laughs> so it didn't really pan out. No, but the building was so cool we had to include it in the book. <laughs> and does, does the Twin Teepees fall in here anywhere? Not that I know of. I mean, it's a roadside attraction. They had that sort of architecture yeah. right there by Green Lake, but uh, I never heard of any crime occurring okay. there. <laughs> you know, when I was reading it, it seemed like there were a number of black proprietors, and I was thinking back then, that was very unusual for anyone who was black to own a business. Was it because they couldn't get into like a non a legal business? So they, if they wanted to own something, they did something illegal because it was the only option they had, or or was there some other reason? Well, first of all, I think that um, there were plenty of black entrepreneurs back then who had small businesses, whether they were barber shops oh, okay. or little restaurants, but they were in the uh, black-oriented uh, business strips, like on East Madison okay. and, and uh, South Jackson Street. Um, but you are correct that we highlight a number of prominent uh, black uh, bootleggers and speakeasy owners and in the book, and we mainly did that because they were the most prominent, and mm-hmm. I don't... Partially it was because they happened to have money. Mm-hmm. Like uh, probably the most famous one was Russell Noodle Smith, who showed up in town uh, to attend the uh, Alaska Yukon Pacific oh. Exposition here, Seattle's first World's Fair, and that was in 1909. And it's been noted that he arrived in town with seventeen thousand dollars to invest. Wow! So that was a lot of money back then. And uh, he joined with another guy called Blackie Williams, and they, in 1917, opened up the Dumas Club at 10th and Jackson. And uh, in 1920, they opened uh, the Alhambra uh, nightclub at 12th and Jackson that later became the famous Black and Tan uh, nightclub where Ray Charles and Ernestine Anderson, some Mm. of our top jazz and rhythm and blues people here in town played well into the 1960s at least. Wow. Um, But I think that what any of these speakeasy operators or bootleggers had in common, black, white, or whatever, was a sense of daring. You know, they took chances, and uh, in many cases, they were ultimately handled with kids' gloves by this corrupt city yeah. government. So, um, in the book, probably the key figure that we highlight in the book was uh, John Henry Doc Hamilton, yes, uh, who was a World War One veteran who showed up in town and. Um, probably became the most, uh, as I say, prominent uh, speakeasy owner. He ran at least three that I can think of, one on Aurora, one on uh, the Bothell Road, and his most popular and first one was the barbecue pit at, uh, what is it, 12th and Madison, I think. And that place, here's another example, that place was so popular that the mayor, this is during Prohibition, the mayor drank there regularly. <laughs> City council members drank there regularly. And on occasion, who knows why, the police would come and decide to bust him. And it became sort of a running joke in town. Doc Hamilton became a folk hero to a lot of people. He's, yeah. he's in the paper every week, and his whole shtick was get busted, go to court, 
uh, chuckle through the whole court trial, maybe pretend he was napping or snoring. Mm. Uh, and he always had a wisecrack to make, no matter to the reporters, <laughs> before, during, and after the trials. And he would pay his little measly fine, and mm. he'd be back on the streets running his places over and over and over and over again. Yeah, so. he'd just go right back and do the same thing over And at again. one time, he brought sandwiches in for everybody, right? Yeah, exactly. In the courtroom. Yeah, to, for the jury, I think. Yeah, so they were probably chicken sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. So he was quite a character. He also had a little combo that played in those, and he was part of a... Uh, uh, well, it was the Doc Hamilton Quartet, a vocal group oh. that would entertain. So music, booze, being the great host and being a popular character in town. That, yeah. was, that was him. You know, there was a picture of him. He's a very good-looking guy, and he yeah. did have the golden smile. He had exactly. one of those beautiful smiles. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, Probably had a couple of golden teeth inside <laughs> that smile, too. Yeah. God. <laughs> I, I was kind of laughing because we moved up here from California in 63, mm-hmm. and my parents always said, the laws are so strange here. Like, mom couldn't go someplace and meet dad. Like, he couldn't come later because she couldn't go into the bar right. and, and stuff. And I, we just thought they were weird blue laws, but it was yeah. all about prostitution because it was to keep women from going in and plying their wares. It was mostly about prostitution. Some of it was just puritanical, trying to stop the fun. I mean, I don't get the connection to prostitution why nobody could walk around the bar with their drink in their hand. You had to sit at a table to drink. Yeah. So they were just trying to keep it from getting rowdy, I think. Yeah. Keep the partying down. Yeah. That's so interesting. (laughs) Um, I was kind of thinking as I was reading that I wonder if there's a lineage from, like, we know why the Roadhouse has started, you know, the... Prohibition and of course the start of the cars coming in and everything. Has that have, have the roadhouses morphed into something else? Is is like that where dive bars come from, or um, or is it is, is it was just a period in time and it's sort of over? I think it's the latter. I don't okay. think there's much of a linkage left anymore, other than the commonality of people uh, in this day and age. Sometimes still wanting to go out in the evening. And have some fun, but mm. you know what we call a dive now. There's not that many left in Seattle, and I know. usually the connotation is that they're old and crusty bars. Um, but I was thinking about the stiff drinks. No, the stiff drinks it, you know, part. The yeah. stiff drinks part. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have an office at the rickshaw. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's that place on Aurora called Aurora Borealis now, and it made me laugh because that's why you said Aurora was named. Yeah. Why that way? Yeah. And I was thinking, well, and they've got a dance floor, and they're having live music there. And of course, yeah. he he talks about it in the book. Yeah. And and you yeah. and I have been downstairs where yeah. that was probably sealed off, and all the gambling and all that stuff was going yeah. down. And oh, is bottom. that that was one that that was a roadhouse that site out. at least? Okay, yeah. yeah. And it was originally a uh, horse riding camp. I mean, it was a big piece of acreage that city folk would come up there and rent a horse and ride it on their trails. So it goes way back. Okay. Wow. But I don't get the roadhouse feel when I go to most places anymore around town here. They're too slick. Yeah. And the blaring sports TVs and, you know, all the Budweiser signs and stuff. And I just don't feel the culture that I imagined was going on back in the day. Yeah. 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 And I don't know... There was a lot of talk about fraternities and sororities too, and I, they go someplace else, probably sports bars yeah. on the Ave. Well, yeah, Fiddler's Inn probably still has a bit of a vibe to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Well, my last question is about Sam Michelle. Ah. You said that there might be a story that didn't make it into the book. That is true, or into the 
essays that I've written about, uh, and I've thought about writing this one up as its own story, but I'll give you a brief version of it, which okay. is to say that the deep history of San Michel, Chateau San Michel Winery, the greatest winery ever in Washington State, I do believe, mm-hmm. uh, traces back to 1933, where one group of Germans founded the Pomerel wow. Winery uh, in an old hotel uh, down on Dearborn uh, in the Soto District. And uh, in 1938, they moved to East Marginal Way, but they were making apple wine and they were making sherry wine and white port, that sort of mm. thing. Uh, secondarily was uh, the National Wine Company. Um, and as opposed to being founded and run by Germans, it was run by Italians. Oh. And they were in the old Ford dealership shop that's still there at the uh, south end of the Fremont Bridge. Oh, wow. And so you had these Germans across town making wine. You had the Italians across town making wine. And they sort of competed for a whole bunch of years. Uh, They eventually did merge in 1940. And their claim to fame is that they, uh, in 1955, planted the first vinifera vineyard in eastern Washington. Ah. But the untold story is that the Italian guys uh, in Fremont... Uh, unlike most of the rest of the history of those companies, including San Michel, just weren't in the headlines very often for causing any sort of trouble. But there was the one time when the uh, National Wine Company in Fremont mm-hmm. was raided by the liquor agents um, after Prohibition. See, the problem with this liquor business is that even when Prohibition was over, you could still get in trouble if you were uh, smuggling wine or making alcohol that wasn't taxed and licensed. Oh, okay. And so that's what those guys were caught doing. They were caught running, a, I think, a whiskey still operation down in the woods of Eatonville, and it was a huge operation. It was not a little garage. It was a custom-built, or as people say now, bespoke. (laughs) Distillery, making massive amounts of uh, alcohol. And long story short, because you're going to have to read the essay or part two of a book if I do it, but uh, uh, the government finally got one of those partners to rat on the other guys. Oh, man. And so Joe Carbonato ratted on uh, one of his uh, teams whose name was Alval. And uh, that wasn't very much appreciated by the boys. And uh, so the climax of the story basically is that uh, it went to trial. It was in the newspaper headlines for days and weeks. And during all of that, uh, one evening, Mr. Carbonato and his wife were sitting in their living room watching TV when somebody drove by and shot out their living room window from a car trying to get them. Oh, my God. Scared them. Mm Mm-hmm. And... uh, and uh, basically, the, but the uh, trouble was resolved with you know guilty verdicts on at least one oh. of those guys. Oh, so, okay. But it looked pretty classic uh, Chicago, yeah, mob, New yet. York, you know, gang kind of stuff. So yeah. Not that I know that it was, mind you. Yes. But uh, it's one of the few examples that I know of that uh, resulted in something like that around here. Wow, that's amazing. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for being here today. This is the the book is so fun to read. It's just and Thank you know you. the history of it is great, but when you know these places, the locations, it's fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, Tom and Connie. So there's some printed copies out there the that people, people can get. Amazon has it. Barnes and Noble has it online. Okay. And um, and then there's also a digital version. Is there now? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) It probably is, but I don't pay attention to that. I don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for coming out. Appreciate you having me over. All right. Bye-bye. We're going to be right back with some tips and tricks. Support for Seattle Dining and the Seattle Dining Show is provided in part by... 
The resort at Port Ludlow, nestled on the shores of Puget Sound, just an hour from Seattle. The resort at Port Ludlow offers 37 cozy rooms, each with a fireplace and jetted tub. And Fireside, a farm-to-table restaurant celebrating the bounty of local farms, artisan meats, and cheese. The dinner menu changes daily to reflect the best the region has to offer. Their 18-hole golf course is appreciated by players of all skill levels with stunning views throughout. The 300-slip marina offers many amenities along with kayak and watercraft rentals. Find more information online at portludlowresort.com. Hi, this is Angela, and I live in Finney Ridge, and my favorite restaurant right now is Eight Row in Green Lake. Uh, great restaurant, a lot of featuring, uh, feature a lot of uh, Northwest Washington foods and just delicious, delicious um, cuisine, and get the pie. Hi, this is Eric Anderson at Samara in Sunset Hill, and you're listening to the Seattle Dining Show. Back on the Seattle Dining Show, and we're coming into the final lap. Lap, the, the final course of the meal, yes. the tips and the tricks. <laughs> and we have tips and tricks online if you want to see those. That's true. And you just go to seattledining.com and click on the tips and tricks link. Or I guess you get that in the newsletter, don't you? Yeah, it comes out with once, the newsletter. Once a month. If you're not a subscriber to the newsletter, you might want to do that if you're a foodie. There's a lot of good information there. Yeah. Anyways, what's your tip? Well, you know, a lot of times I will buy off-brands or generic things. I don't have a problem with that. But we have learned the hard way. There is one time you should not do that for sure, and that is with refrigerator filters. I had an. Oh, that's a good tip. Yeah. I had an instance, and this has been, what, a year and a half ago now? Um, my... My ice wasn't tasting very good, and I was, you know, I'd throw it all out and have all new ice, wash everything, and it wouldn't taste good. And then pretty soon, you could smell it in the refrigerator, and pretty soon you could taste it in the food. So I started researching, and we did some crazy things. I mean, there was a filter down at the bottom. We had one of our neighbors come in, and we tipped the refrigerator over, and he held it up while you cleaned out the filter on the bottom. We did a lot of stuff. Nothing helped. Nothing helped. And then you said... You know, we bought those generic filters. Let's get one that's supposed to go with the refrigerator. So we, we got one, and it was like, it wasn't instantaneous. It took a while to clean out, a couple of days. But I have never had the problem since. So the last time I encountered this, I was actually working on a person's refrigerator who that person worked for Amazon. And I told her, I know you work for Amazon. I don't want to offend you. But do not buy your filters over Amazon. Go to the hardware store and get your filters there. Because those are the only ones that I've ever had good luck with that don't end up tasting funky. Mm -hmm. And it was bad. Oh, my God. Just the pungent smell. And that was the same thing that happened at her house. It had that same pungent smell. I'm like, oh, God, I know that smell. I've been here. I hate it. Uh, 
Well, my tip is a little reminder. We did this about five years ago, but we'll do it again. Uh, holidays are coming up. You want to get your kitchen spruced up, and you want to get your kitchen really clean. So remember that underneath the aerator, or not the aerator, but the, the little garbage disposal collar that goes mm. over your garbage disposal, if you haven't cleaned it for a while, I could guarantee you there's black mold growing under there. If you haven't cleaned out your pipes in a while, that little that little joint down in the bottom, there's probably black mold growing between the sink and the joint. And another place I found black mold is on a, I have a water filter so I can have fresh drinking water. Stick a Q-tip up in that little spout and see if something black pops out. Uh, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I've had it happen, and it's <laughs> it's pretty scary when you get a little piece of black mold out of the spout of the water filter water. So um, uh, also, you know, the line that goes to your ice maker... That should have a filter on it, and you should be replacing that on a regular basis. This is if you have a line separate from uh, – it's actually coming off of your sink and going to your ice maker. That line should be a clear line, and you should be able to look at it, and it better be clear because it could be black. It could have dark colors in it So because black mold is everywhere. Yeah, it's bad. Boy, our tips and tricks were downers today, but we'll save you. We're saving your lives. Exactly. And you know, it's like I was wondering, that pungent smell in the water filter stuff, mm-hmm. what does that do to, like, your kidneys and your liver? I mean, uh, someday I'll die and they'll say, oh, yeah, Tom had liver cancer, he drank too much wine. I'd be like, <laughs> no, I didn't. I drank some of that nasty filtered water. That's what killed me. <laughs> That's your story, and you are sticking to it. I'll say that on my deathbed. (laughs) It's a damn water filter. All Uh, right. It is time to wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us on the September show. If you're not already a subscriber to our online magazine, which is awesome, it's free to do so. Just go to seattledining.com and click on subscribe free. I want you to dine well. I want you to drink well. Not drink from the well, unless you have a water filter in <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, make sure that black mold's not there. And we want you to dine often. And we'll see you back here for the October show next month. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Seattle Dining Show. This program is a copyrighted production of Mixed Media. and may not be reproduced in part or in whole without written permission of the legal owner, all right? However, feel free to share the link with all your friends on Facebook. Studio equipment for this broadcast was purchased locally at American Music, a Fremont icon. The views and opinions expressed on this show are exclusive to the hosts and guests and do not reflect those of former employees of Bill the Butcher, the Surrogate Hostess, the Beeline Diner, Louie's Chinese Cuisine, the Doghouse, the Five Mile House, Charlie's, the Twin Teepees, Ocean Air, Benjamin's, the Madison Park Cafe, or any other lost Seattle icon. Subscribe free to our monthly magazine, online at seattledining.com and join us next time for another edition of the seattle dining show